Welcome, my friends, to Nature's Edge. My name is Dale Stewart, and on today's show, our guest and I will discuss two men who changed our understanding of the natural world. These men did not mean to rock the world. They meant only to know the truth. But before they were done, Charles Darwin and Alfred R. Wallace would shake the belief of centuries, would be revealed as fiends, denounced as mad, and finally held as geniuses. Darwin's life was a storm-swept voyage of discovery. From the moment when he was a young man, he set sail on a five-year journey around the globe, his final years and epic explorations into the ultimate mystery of human origins. Alfred Wallace was a British naturalist, explorer, geography, geographer, anthropologist, and biologist. He's best known for independently conceiving the theory of evolution through natural selection. His paper on the subject was jointly published with some of Charles Darwin's writings in 1858. This prompted Darwin to publish his own ideas on the origin of species. Wallace did extensive field work, and he was considered the 19th century's leading expert on the geographical distribution of animal species and is sometimes known as the father of biogeography. Our guest today, Dr. Jim Costa, is executive director of Highlands Biological Station and a faculty member at Western Carolina University. And he knows these two gentlemen quite well. Uh, Jim uh, has studied insect social behavior widely from the Southern Appalachians to Latin America and Europe. Through his work, Jim is also a longtime research associate in entomology at Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology. And in 2004-2005 was named the Jim the Gene uh, is, it, I think, Rosalie, a fellow at Harvard's Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, where he completed his first book, The Other Insect Societies. Jim has taught genetics, biography, entomology, Darwin's on the origin of species and field courses in Highlands, North Carolina, Hawaii, and the desert southwest. His, his interest in Darwin and the history of evolutionary biology takes him to England each summer where he teaches the, on the Origin of Species and Harvard Summer Program at the University of Oxford. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dale. Good to be with you. My pleasure. First of all, uh, tell us a little bit about your work at the Highlands Biological Station. Sure, yeah. Um, I've had the pleasure of, um, of running the Biological Station uh, for about 10 years now. Um, the station is a part of the University of North Carolina system, and since the early 80s, it's had a close relationship with Western Carolina, where I've been on the faculty for, I guess, nearing 20 years now. Uh, and it's a, it's a, a field station that just provides um, field courses in all, all manner of, of field studies at the undergraduate and graduate level and has a, a number of um, laboratories and such to support uh, research into different aspects of organisms and ecological systems here of the, uh, the, the Appalachian region. And the uh, the station is open to the public. Uh, it is open to the public. Yeah, there is a botanical garden at the station, a, a native plant, about twelve acre botanical garden that's um, open three hundred and sixty five days a year, uh, free, you know, and open to the public. Uh, also, a natural history museum called the Highlands Nature Center, with lots of uh, public programming, um, typically all also free and, and open to the public. And um, the summertime. That's got a, a an evening lecture series as well. That's quite popular, called the Zahner Lectures in Conservation Biology. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. That's sort of the educational outreach component of the of the station. Exactly of the station. That's right. Yeah, 
Um, and, and tell us a little bit about your uh, your academic, uh, your teaching load, uh, both at Western, Western North Carolina, and then also uh, you do some lectures at uh, at other universities around the around the globe, correct? Uh, I do. Um, yeah, I'm fortunate. You know, I've got a nice balance of, uh, of, of research, teaching, um, administration, of course, at the at the biological station. So at Western Carolina, I periodically teach courses in uh, biogeography, which is that field that Alfred Russell Wallace uh, helped to, to found. Right. Uh, also a course on Darwin and the origin of species. And that's the same course, actually, that I teach in a kind of condensed format uh, in Oxford each summer um, as part of a program that's just completed its 10th year. Uh, so that's it's pretty pretty nice having opportunities to teach and you know, to diverse um, audiences of students in, in different places. Absolutely. I, I know when I travel around uh, lecturing, it's, it's always amazing uh, how some of the questions are similar and some of the questions are not. I guess it just depends on, uh, on the society and the culture that you come from. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about these two amazing gentlemen. I know most people are very familiar with Charles Darwin. Not so many uh, uh, are familiar with Alfred Wallace, although I'm a uh, a, a great follower of his. Give us a little. Uh, give us a little sense about these two gentlemen. Well, they're you know they they come from very different backgrounds, and they were sort of broadly contemporaries. Although Wallace was younger than Darwin by about twelve years, um, you know he came from fairly humble circumstances. Unlike Darwin's family, which was quite wealthy, you know Darwin's grandfather Erasmus Darwin was a famous physician. Uh, and a very good uh, investor. His own father was a, a wealthy physician as well. And uh, and so and the family was related to the Wedgwoods, and there was considerable uh, fortune from that side of the family as well. Uh, so he really had a life of, of privilege. You know, he was, Darwin was originally intended to follow in, you know, his father's and grandfather's footsteps and go to med school, but found that he just didn't couldn't really stomach that. And uh, then he, his father packed him off to Cambridge, where he was going to study uh, theology, really. And the plan was to eventually become a clergyman. And uh, but he was long, you know, captivated by this idea of the life of of the of the naturalist, the traveler naturalists, like the great Alexander von Humboldt, for example, yes. um, excited him. And he, you know, had these these thoughts about traveling in in the footsteps of the likes of Humboldt. Uh, and was encouraged to do that by his uh, his esteemed professors there at uh, at Cambridge, and they actually um, made it possible for him to eventually uh, become um, invited to serve as the, the the captain's companion and naturalist aboard HMS Beagle, and provided him with this opportunity of a lifetime to to travel. Uh, so his his road was 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 a fairly easy one in that respect, uh, as opposed to. Uh, the more difficult circumstances of um, of the young Wallace, uh, whose family was sort of middle class. His father did train as a lawyer, but never practiced, or at least not long and not successfully. Uh, and his father, um, as the family grew larger and larger, also became more and more impoverished through, you know, poor investments and and other issues. And as a result, the family moved around a lot. Um, Wallace was, I want, I, I believe, the seventh of eight kids. You know, born in rural Wales, where they had moved because the living was as cheap as possible, as, as he said. 
And, uh, you know, he had to eventually leave school. The, the little formal schooling he had was uh, when the family had moved to the town of Hartford, just north of London, his mother's hometown. And he had a little some stability there for a while, but had to leave school at the age of 14 when his father uh, died uh, unexpectedly, rather young. And so, you know, he had to go and, and work and, and help support the family. He was packed off to serve as an apprentice surveyor. Uh, he worked uh, for a clockmaker for a time, an apprentice builder. Uh, his eldest brother was a surveyor, so he was training under his brother in the uh, the Welsh-English borderlands, that, that area. Um, so that was, you know, remarkable that given he had so little formal education, he was keen on... Uh, improving himself. You know, he had a voracious appetite for reading, and he availed himself of free lectures. Uh, the Working Men's Institute had uh, books available, the precursors of modern public libraries, and he would uh, spend a lot of his free time in these libraries reading, and uh, very broadly, not just science, but uh, social issues as well interested him. Jim, I'm going to cut you off here as we're coming up on a break. My in-studio guest is Dr. Jim Costa, and we're discussing Russell Wallace and Charles Darwin, and we shall return. Welcome back to Nature's Edge. You're listening to Dale Stewart and my special guest today, Dr. Jim Costa. And Jim is is sort of a modern-day expert on Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace. And and before the break, uh, Jim, we were talking about Wallace, and I'm I'm really interested in learning a little more about him, and I know my listeners are. Sort of what do you think drove him to... um, uh, to be more involved with the natural world, and also to to sort of uh, parallel some of the some of the thing that uh, uh, that Darwin was doing, or was Wallace actually ahead of Darwin in in uh, in sort of the 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 laws of change and, and natural selection? Sure. Yeah, I can I can speak to that. You know, I, I mentioned how you know Wallace was a voracious reader. You know, he's interested in lots of different subjects. And, uh, but fortunately, um, of course, it probably seemed unfortunate at the time, but fortunately for us, he was basically laid off at one point by his brother. There was a downturn in that surveying business, and he ended up moving to the town of Leicester in England, in England. where he got a job for about a year as a school teacher. And while there, he met a guy about the same, the same age as him with Bates, uh, Henry Walter Bates, and turned out to be a real kindred spirit. Um, Bates was a very keen amateur naturalist, um, especially entomologist who loved collecting beetles. And he turned Wallace on to collecting beetles and just sort of opened his eyes to the incredible diversity you can find in the insect world. Mm. And Wallace was really fired up when he got interested in a subject. He just, you know, kind of, you know, went for it. He jumped in very deeply and he became uh, just passionate about collecting beetles. 
And they also were interested in these bigger questions, you know, the, the real big philosophical questions uh, that the things like, you know, the, you know, why are species distributed as we see them on the earth? Uh, what, what, what is the origin of species? You know, those very big sound questions. And it doesn't seem likely that a couple of guys with very little schooling would really be able to um, make any headway on, on big questions like that. You know, these were questions that, you know, the leading elite naturalists of the time were, were still pondering and, and arguing about. Um, but they actually uh, sort of hatched a scheme to travel to the tropics specifically to uh, explore these questions. And that, that's a, a remarkable thing about Wallace. You know, he had read a book, he and Bates as well, they read a book that was published in 1844 called Vestiges of the Natural History of Creation. And the Vestiges was a scandalous book. You know, it argued for what we would call evolution today. Yes. Uh, their word for the, that whole process was uh, transmutation. And it was um, it was really a discreditable idea, and one that uh, you know the clergy were denouncing. Even you know it was on everyone's lips. You know, Queen Victoria had parts of the book read aloud to her by Prince Albert. You know, people were were debating the, this concept of of change, and the author had argued uh, that all things change. You know, the universe sort of evolves, the earth evolves, even you know species evolve societies evolved, and it was thought to be a, a real affront to the established order of things in, in England. In fact, um, the author published that book anonymously, knowing that it was going to cause a firestorm. But it, it says something about Wallace, that on reading this book that so many people were condemning, he saw the virtue in it. You know, He didn't agree with all of it, but he, he was convinced immediately that the author was really onto something. You know, this idea that species can change. Sure. So, you know, he, um, he and Bates decided to try to explore the subject and being interested in species and varieties and their distribution, they realized, well, the place to do that, if you're going to study species, you have to go to where most of the species are found, namely the tropics. Yeah, that's exactly right. When did, when did Wallace become aware of Darwin, or when did Darwin become aware of Wallace? Mm. Yeah, they, they did correspond for a while. You know, after Bates and Wallace collected in South America, Wallace was there about four years, and Bates was there a total of 11 years. Um, Wallace had come home in the meantime. There's a whole little story there, you know, so, somewhat disastrously as the ship that he was coming home on burned in the middle of the Atlantic. Sort of an, an epic story there. Um, but, but Wallace made it and then headed off to the Far East, to Southeast Asia, what is modern-day Indonesia, parts of peninsular Malaysia, western New Guinea and such. And it was in that phase of his travels, this is by the 1850s now, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, he, he got in touch with Charles Darwin. Darwin, by this time, had already very much worked out a theory of species change. He had discovered the principle of natural selection. He was long, you know, not only convinced that species changed, but he was already, since the late 1830s, pursuing the different lines of evidence that you would need to put together for a compelling argument for species change. So he was accumulating evidence, kind of thinking sometime in the future he would write a book on the subject, and didn't really think that anyone was, uh, was on the trail 
of that of that same uh, that same topic. You know, people were interested in species, but he thought Darwin thought that his idea of natural selection was was unique and very unlikely that anyone would have independently hit upon that idea. So, as part of his investigations, he was writing letters to naturalists around the world. Uh, asking for information, uh, observations, sometimes specimens. Wallace was one of those people that he got in touch with. Mm. So they started a correspondence because of their mutual interest in species and varieties. And neither of them really tipped their hand to the other that they believed that species actually change and that they were interested in gathering evidence for that. Um, So they sort of danced around that topic in these very polite letters, um, but you know there was so there was a correspondence there, and, and that explains in large part why when Wallace eventually did discover the principle of natural selection, he he very excitedly decided of all people to share it with, he sent it to Darwin. Yeah, the, didn't Wallace actually sort of outline a book that he was going to write, but but he never did, and and <clears throat> that that sort of essay or outline of that book, is that what he sent to, uh, to Darwin? Well, he, he, was, he was working on the outline of such a book, but he didn't reveal to Darwin just how far his thinking was going. He didn't reveal to Darwin the fact that he was working on a book. Uh, but we, we know now that he was through this um, notebook that Wallace kept in the Correct. 1850s. This is the, uh, the notebook that uh, I had the, the good fortune to have an opportunity to study and recently publish with the cooperation of the Linnaean Society of London, um, published with Harvard University Press. And uh, this, this is a notebook that historians have called Wallace's Species Notebook because it's, you know, in addition to being a working notebook with lots of memoranda and, and you know, insect observations and, and notes and things, he has long passages of an evolutionary nature where you see him working out those same lines of evidence that Darwin was working on. And uh, in various very suggestive statements in the book, he reveals that this is all to the end of eventually publishing a book on the subject. Um, Bearing in mind, this is all before he discovered the principle of natural selection. We are talking with Dr. Jim Costa on Nature's Edge today. This is Dale Stewart. We're going to take a short break, and we will be back, and I will have some additional questions for Jim, uh, including where is Wallace's Species Notebook to be found? Uh, is it in England, Jim? The original it is in notebook? England, yeah. It, it resides um, in Piccadilly in the Linnaean Society of London, no which is uh, located in a, in a beautiful building called Burlington House. Yes, and it is a beautiful building. This is Dale Stewart and Nature's Edge, and we shall be back shortly.
Y'all, welcome back. This is Dale Stewart, and you're listening to Nature's Edge with my guest today, Dr. Jim Costa. Jim is Executive Director of Highlands Biological Station and a faculty member at Western North Carolina University. And we are discussing something that Jim is very familiar with, and that's Mr. Charles Darwin and Mr. Alfred Russell Wallace, two very famous uh, naturalist. Uh, we were talking a little bit about Wallace and, and his um, his species notebook. And, and Now, did he send that notebook to Darwin? No, 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 he didn't. It was a, a private notebook uh, that eventually was passed on to his, uh, his children. And his children eventually in the 30s, mid-30s, I believe, uh, donated it to the Linnaean Society in London, uh, where it's, uh, it's resided ever since in, in their library, uh, along with some other uh, documents and notebooks from Wallace. Tell us now, now you, you wrote a book. Is, is that book on the uh, organic law of change? Yes, yes, exactly. That's the one. Uh, the, on the organic law of change was uh, a title that a historian of science, Lewis McKinney, back in the early 70s, had suggested, had, had Wallace published the book on evolution that he was hinting in the species notebook, he might have used a title like that because there's a very suggestive um, passage, really a passage that opens a, a long narrative section of the notebook, uh, which he headed up with um, uh, the title, um, Note for Organic Law of Change, and underlined that. And uh, so in sort of a, in honor of McKinney and, and thinking about about the likelihood that Wallace would have used a title very much like that, I, I adopted it as a title for this book that I was able to produce with Harvard University Press. Uh, Jim, this book, is it available uh, in bookstores and Amazon.com, all of those places? It is. It, it's available in all the, the usual places, um, uh, Harvard University Press and uh, many uh, of the, the the booksellers, independent and, and big ones, uh, carry it. Uh, Barnes and Noble certainly available on on Amazon and, and local bookstores uh, here in the Asheville and, and Cullowhee Silva area uh, have been carrying it as well. And then and then you also have a book, Wallace Darwin and the Origin of Species, correct? That yes, of... that's correct. That's a sort of a companion volume. Uh, the the notebook itself uh, on the organic law of change. Harvard produced a, a beautiful uh, facsimile reproduction page by page of the notebook. And then uh, working with my wife, Leslie, we produced a transcription for ease of reading. And then uh, I produced annotations to help the reader understand um, what Wallace is, is getting at on these different pages. And uh, I also, after analyzing the notebook, I realized that there was a, a really compelling story to be told about uh, the notebook, what the notebook told us about the development of Wallace's thinking, uh, an opportunity to explore the Darwin-Wallace relationship. So the, the companion volume, if you will, uh, Wallace, Darwin, and the Origin of Species, uh, also published by Harvard, just came out uh, last June, June 2014, uh, is uh, intended to be a companion to help readers who might be interested in the development of uh, evolutionary thinking to better understand um, Wallace and understand how remarkably parallel uh, the, the the different lines of evidence, his um, his method of thinking and, and working, uh, how that parallels Darwin's, and I think helps um, give us a new appreciation 
for Wallace as a as an evolutionary thinker. Jim, was there a, was there jealousy uh, or friendship? What what was Wallace and Darwin's relationship, and did it change? Well, you know, well early, early on, as you might expect, um, there was there was a bit uneasy, at least from Darwin's point of view. You know, um, Darwin was basically scooped by Wallace, mm. and his friends rallied to his assistance and arranged for some of Darwin's unpublished writings on the subject to be published alongside of Wallace's paper on the subject. So t- they took, you know, something of an unusual step in doing that. And uh, Darwin rightly feared that uh, Wallace might be jealous, might be resentful. Um, but really, uh, Wallace's reaction was exactly the opposite. You know, Wallace's sense of fairness was more, you know, who who came up with an idea first and really pursued it. And once it became clear that Darwin was there, you know, years before he got there, he was always very happy to defer to Darwin, um, but maybe to a fault. You know, some people would suggest that, uh, well, maybe he, he overdid that and was too quick to take a back seat. Uh, in any case, you know, his generosity, his, you know, his respect for Darwin was such that they became friends. He was a frequent visitor uh, to the, the Darwin family uh, at Down House. Um, they had their arguments, their ups and downs about different aspects of uh, evolutionary theory, but always a very warm relationship. Did they do uh, any... Wallace was a... I'm sorry? No, I was just going to ask you if they did any public... uh... Uh, readings or appearances together? No, 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 no appearances together. Um, Darwin was famously uh, reclusive to some extent. You know, he really didn't like to travel. He didn't um, make public appearances, uh, increasingly so. You know, stay, like to stay home and very much a family man working there at home. Wallace, on the other hand, uh, although not considered to be, you know, a, 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 a great speaker. Uh, did become very well known for his very, very clear lectures on evolution. And uh, in fact, he had a very successful tour of lecturing in the U.S. in the 1880s and eventually published a book based on those lectures. Uh, so he, he made quite a few public appearances. Uh, more, it, more, yeah, it's, it's funny that Darwin did kind of become a, a recluse uh, uh, toward the end of his life after traveling around the world in his early, in his early life. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I don't think, uh, uh, you know, Wallace really, I don't think, was a secondary figure to, uh, to Darwin. But as you said, he, he, he almost uh, took, a, took a back seat uh, uh, to Darwin, almost bowed to his expertise, even though it seems that he was equally uh, responsible for some, of the, uh, for some of these early theories. Yes, and I think that you know, in large part, um, that is because of Darwin's book on the origin of species uh, coming out very quickly after those joint things. So that came out in 1859. And the fact that the Darwin name was actually already fairly famous, already pretty well known. You know, his, his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was certainly a very famous uh, poet and physician in, in his day. And uh, Darwin himself, you know, achieved some level of fame, especially with um, his book Voyage of the Beagle. Yes. You know, his, his narrative account of his travels uh, first came out in 1839, uh, very well received, so well received 
that, you know, although it first came out as part of the longer series of, um, of narratives about the voyage, uh, it was so popular that it was republished separately and retitled Voyage of the Beagle in 1845. So Dar- Darwin's name was, was quite well known at that point. And I think that the fact that Wallace's was not at all known contributed to the, the, you know, just how quickly people then associated the new idea with the one and not the other. You yeah, add to that Wallace's taking a back seat, and that explains how he started off on this road to eclipse that he's never really recovered from. Yeah, it seems that um, after Wallace died, he, he sort of slid into obscurity while Darwin's uh, uh, popularity seemed to rise, correct? After their yeah. deaths? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. And uh, that, that's in large part, you know, due to the steady, well, really almost exponential increase in the interest in this subject of evolution by natural selection. Um, Darwin, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just, uh, yeah, go ahead with your thoughts. Well, I, I was just going com- to just to complete that, that thought, you know, just point out how Darwin was pretty single-minded. He published quite a few additional books after the origin. And they were on a range of subjects, some of them botanical, some of them zoological, but all of them of a piece in arguing for this overarching vision of the unity of life, common descent, descent with modification, and so on. Wallace became increasingly socially engaged. He published many books as well. Some of them are classics in in the scientific world, but also many, many social subjects. He wrote you know, just um, dozens and dozens of articles on top of his books, weighing in on on various kinds of social issues. This is Dale Stewart, Nature's Edge, and my special guest, Dr. Jim Costa. We shall return. Welcome back. This is Dale Stewart with Nature's Edge, and we are discussing uh, Charles Darwin and Russell Wallace, two... uh, Pretty extraordinary uh, men in their own right. Uh, When we're doing this with Dr. Jim Costa, Jim is the executive director of a Highlands Biological Station, a faculty member at Western Carolina, and has written a couple of books uh, on these two amazing gentlemen. And uh, Jim, as as we enter into this last segment, is there anything you really want to sort of finish up with or underscore as it relates to Wallace and Darwin? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, um, I'll just a- emphasize again because we mentioned the friendship between these uh, these naturalists. That um, you know, it, it, in some measure, my analysis in Wallace Darwin and the Origin of Species was to consider the uh, these persistent allegations that that crop up that somehow Wallace was wronged by Darwin and his circle, or that Darwin stole ideas from Wallace. You know, those sorts of things. Sure. And I really try to put put that to rest. You know. Um, through a pretty thorough, what I think is a very thorough consideration of of the allegations and the evidence. You know, I, I think there's no evidence at all for any wrongdoing on Wallace on uh, Darwin's part. Um, and I guess I'd like to also just uh, underscore how uh, how remarkable it is that Wallace was able to achieve all, all that he did. You know, considering his very humble origins. You know, the fact that he had um, very little formal education. You know, uh, fairly impoverished. You know, no, no social standing, no connections, um, no money to speak of. Unlike actually, Darwin. Yeah. Unlike Darwin, you know, mm-hmm. managing to, you know, to actually realize this dream or, or scheme, if you want to look at it that way, to travel the world and and explore the big questions. Um, he, he's just 
you know, I, I honor both of them, but he, but he is truly remarkable in how much he had to overcome to make contributions at that level. Well, absolutely, and as someone that, that has been fortunate enough to do expeditions around the world, they uh, they ain't cheap, as some people say. And and even in in <laughs> his even in his day, uh, did did Wallace have a benefactor? Did did he have an individual or or the Royal Geographical no. Society, or where where was he getting his money? Yeah, he was. He had no benefactor per se, um, but his. Um, you know, I think that certain people in uh, in the learned societies, like the Royal Geographical Society, were impressed with the young Wallace and and his uh, his passion, his 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 abilities. They clearly saw something in it in him, and they facilitated uh, his travels to South America. You know, he uh, he and Bates as well. You know, they um, you know helped. Uh, they put him in touch with the person. Daniel Stevens, who was to become their agent, and the idea was that they would pay their way in South America. And Wallace also did this in Southeast Asia by collecting and sending material back to London. Stevens would then sell that material to museums and wealthy collectors. And in that way, they were sort of um, paying as they go. But as I like to underscore, though, about, about Wallace, you know, he was not traveling in order to collect. He was really collecting while he was out there in order to travel, in order to make observations, and always kept uh, material for himself and sold his duplicates. Uh, so he did have the assistance of, of, of uh, benefactors in, in that respect from societies like the Royal Geographical. Uh, after the great disaster of his ship burning on the way home from South America, uh, luckily the, his agent had uh, insured his collections, and um, he did get a little bit of money for that. And then the Royal Geographical, uh, recognizing his talent, they helped him out with getting to Southeast Asia as well. Ah, so, so, yeah, he, he did have some help. Yeah, and and, uh, and that is important. Let me ask you a, a, a few questions, Jim, in the time we have remaining. Uh, um, yeah, I know that you think, uh, and, and as well as I do and many others, uh, uh, that Darwin and, and Wallace were, were very important to the, the 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 natural uh, world of science, but uh, uh, do you think they're how influential? Do you think they still are today? Well, you know, Darwin certainly more so than Wallace. Um, Darwin, of course, you know, loved or reviled, <laughs> depending on how, you know how you look at him. Sure. You know, his name is a household name. Um, you know, pe- people you know, Darwin's ideas. Th- this idea that really both of them had a share in. In, in discovering, if you will, and 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 developing, um, really shook Western society, you know, to its very foundations. Because you know this idea that just seems so simple, you know, the idea that species change and such, was not only a, a revolution scientifically in the way that the natural world and the diversity of life were understood, but also because society, more so at that time perhaps than now. Uh, had so much invested in a very particular way to understand the world, you know, seen through a sort of theological lens, sure. that to shape to to uh, undermine that was um, it was devastating for many. You know, it really just you know, it, it shook the very fabric of uh, of society, and that's why you know we still have uh, these persistent reverberations today, and it's over exactly the same issues. You yeah. know, uh, the best way to understand the nature of life. Yeah, the, and those are those are really the ethical implications that 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 
oftentimes come out of uh, scientific theory, correct? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and and, and people were aware of those uh, e- even when Wallace and, and Darwin were alive, correct? I mean, that discussion they were aware started of them. Yes, they, they, they were aware of them, but, but ironically, you know, we, we sometimes now today, we assume that in a, in a, in a theological or religious context, many of, of their contemporaries would have been, say, uh, biblical literalists that thought the earth was only 6,000 years old, and, right. and here these guys were talking about, you know, an ancient earth. But, but actually, curiously, that idea about biblical literalism and a very young earth is really much more of a 20th century phenomenon. You know, even the the leading clerics of Darwin and Wallace's day, including the most esteemed of his uh, clergy professors, Darwin's at at Cambridge, um, Henslow and Sedgwick and such, none of them would have subscribed to the idea of a 6,000-year-old earth or reading the Bible literally. You know, it, it more had to do with the kind of natural theology tradition and understanding you know whether to what extent the deity, the creator, had an active hand in um, in fashioning species and in shaping the diversity of life. But in a way, the argument between the science and the religion in this context has really become rather twisted. Um, and in more much much more recent decades, it's been assumed that uh, no, the the idea has always been um, Darwin's ideas, Wallace's ideas, versus of a, a literal reading of scripture and, a, and an earth that's only a few thousand years old. Sure. That's not, not the case. Yeah. I, I've got to ask you this question it, it, uh, from my own uh, uh, education. Do you think their theory of natural selection is an optimistic or a pessimistic view of the world? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question to ask, an interesting way to, to, to sort of frame it, yeah. um, because I, I, don't, I don't think of it in that context. Uh, I would say it's, it's neither, um, and maybe this is just the, the scientist in me or, or the biologist. Sure. Um, it, it, I, I would look at it as more, it, it is what it is. Um, uh, you know, Darwin certainly, and Wallace too, appreciated it's a double-edged sword, because if this process is true, uh, it is both responsible for the, the diversity, the beauty, you know, the exquisite structures that we see, the adaptations that we see, and and we can look to the future for you know ever more wonderful things being evolved. That's rather optimistic. Um, but at the same time, they realized that as a natural process, there were um, what we would say would be negative aspects. There is pain in nature. There is suffering in nature. Um, and that's part of the natural order as well. And you might say, well, that's a bit pessimistic to say that the way of the world is, is you know, inevitable pain and, and suffering. Um, but, but both of those are true. Um, but I'm not sure that it's right um, to, or, or helpful, let's say, to sort of use terms like optimism or pessimism uh, in the context of um, a natural uh, sort of a natural process or law. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that was kind of the answer I expected to hear. Uh, I, I've asked that question of other scientists before, and and I and I do agree with you, but I I have to a- uh, ask that question. <laughs> um, you have sure. been listening to Nature's Edge today with Dale Stewart and my uh, special guest, Dr. Jim Costa. Until next time, I will see you in the wild. Mm-hmm.